Hi, listeners. In lieu of new episodes this week, we're showcasing two episodes perfect for the spooky season. It's a two-parter on Nefertiti's Lost Tomb from the ParCast series, Unexplained Mysteries. Enjoy part one today and look out for part two right here later in the week. And if you'd like to hear more mystifying stories, follow Unexplained Mysteries free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with all new episodes of Conspiracy Theories. Happy spooky season, ParCast listeners. I'm Molly from Unexplained Mysteries. And I'm Richard. In honor of Halloween, we invite you to light a torch and descend into the tombs of ancient Egypt's most prolific figures as ParCast brings you a network-wide event called The Mummy's Curse. We'll be dusting off cobwebs and cracking open the coffins on five different shows. From conspiracy theories and haunted places to unsolved murders, unexplained mysteries, and rituals, we're excited to bring you history's spookiest and most adventurous tales. Ever wonder what happened to Nefertiti's lost tomb? Curious about King Tut's mysterious life and death? Want to explore Cairo's most haunted mansion or crack open the Book of the Dead? We're going to make like a mummy and unravel it all. In this episode, we're exploring part one of Nefertiti's lost tomb. Thousands of years after her death, this Egyptian queen is still famous for her beauty. But perhaps she should be known for her power instead. After helping usher in a new age in ancient Egypt, she mysteriously disappeared. Hope you brushed up on your hieroglyphics, because we're going on a mummy hunt. On December 6, 1912, a worker cleared debris from the floor of an ancient art studio. He was one of several men tasked with uncovering the secrets of a little-known city called Amarna. Over 3,000 years ago, Amarna was the capital of one of the ancient world's most powerful empires. Now, all that remained were some discarded artifacts and crumbling foundations. As the worker lifted another heavy spadeful of dirt, he stopped in surprise. Something poked out from the sand near the wall. Something that looked almost alive. He carefully brushed the sand away to reveal brightly colored shoulders and a long, swan-like neck. It was the bust of a woman, her skin so warm and lifelike it seemed she might draw breath at any moment. The huge flat-topped crown on her head marked her as a queen. The worker recognized her immediately. It was Nefertiti. He and a team of archaeologists had been searching for traces of her and her husband, Akhenaten, for some time now. The discovery of her bust kick-started an obsession with the long-forgotten queen. But while her likeness, her palaces, and even her personal belongings have been discovered, the ruler herself is missing. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. 
You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on Nefertiti's Lost Tomb, the final resting place of Egypt's most mysterious queen. 3,400 years ago, she and her pharaoh, Akhenaten, brought sweeping changes to their kingdom. However, several years into her husband's reign, Nefertiti suddenly vanished from the historical record. Today, we'll follow archaeologists as they try to uncover the truth about Nefertiti. We'll discuss the little we know about her life and delve into the controversy over her disappearance. While some believe she died or became an outcast, others say she took a new name, Pharaoh. Next time, we'll investigate Nefertiti's missing tomb and mummy. Perhaps her body was lost to the sands of time, or she was moved for safekeeping, or maybe Nefertiti is hiding right under our noses in the most famous Egyptian tomb of all, that of her stepson, King Tutankhamun. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd started to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sometime in 1714, a Jesuit missionary named Claude Sicard arrived at an imposing limestone cliff near the Nile's west bank. 
Originally from France, Sicar had made Egypt his home for the past two years. While most Europeans marveled over the pyramids from the comfort of Cairo, Sicar wanted to see the far-flung reaches of the country. He journeyed to this particular region called Tuna el Gabel in the hopes of finding Christian converts. He didn't meet any new churchgoers on the cliff, but he did stumble upon an array of carved hieroglyphics. The beautiful pictographic language adorned temples and ruins across the country. Hieroglyphics had been used since before 3100 BCE. However, when Egypt became part of the Roman Empire around 30 BCE, Greek and Latin became the standard. Over time, hieroglyphics faded into obscurity, and the ability to read them was lost, until the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in 1799. That was decades after Sicar's journey. So, while Claude Sicard could marvel at the images before him, he had no way of deciphering their message. But the cryptic hieroglyphics weren't the only relics that stopped him in his tracks. He was also stunned by the strange statues. Where most ancient Egyptian casts were tall with slim, slight proportions, these had round bellies, large thighs, and wide hips and they depicted figures who seemed to be praising a carved disc. Sikar couldn't discern much more than that because the statues were so badly damaged, but not from the elements. Most were missing their heads and showed signs of violence. Someone long ago had broken these statues on purpose. A possible clue lay in the fact that they gazed across the Nile at the eastern bank. Sikar knew the nomadic Beni Amaran people controlled the region, and they didn't take kindly to strangers. As much as he likely wanted to travel to the other side, he ended his investigation there. The relics at Tuna al Gabel would remain shrouded in mystery for another 84 years until an unlikely figure took an interest in the region. In 1798, Thousands of soldiers in heavy European-style uniforms fought for dominance under the shadows of the pyramid. Cannons and muskets just barely missed 3,000-year-old tombs and temples. French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte was on a mission to consolidate power. He figured if he invaded Egypt, he'd gain control of Asian trade and have an edge over his enemies, namely the British. But his campaign had a secondary goal, knowledge. Many French citizens thought ancient Egypt might have been greater than even Greece or Rome, but no one had ever arranged a large-scale expedition to find out. So Napoleon had over 160 scholars with him to study the area. For the first time since Claude Sicard's discovery, researchers traveled to the cliffs of Tuna al Gabel. Unlike Sicar, however, Napoleon's forces kept going across the Nile to the area controlled by the Beni Amaran people. There, they discovered exactly what the statues were looking at. On the Nile's east bank, half buried in sand, were dozens of ancient ruins. An entire city forgotten to time. It wasn't clear who'd lived there or why they'd left. Napoleon's educational expedition launched an Egyptology fad in Europe. 
Soon, archaeologists flocked to Egypt to see the pyramids and temples for themselves. They gained incredible insight into the lives of wealthy Egyptians, from royal tombs and mummies to the importance of the afterlife. Even with these groundbreaking discoveries, the strangely proportioned figures near Tuna el Gabal and the city across the Nile still stumped explorers. The few archaeologists who made the long trek found additional carvings in the same odd style. They depicted a royal family, a king, a queen, and their children worshipping a large round disc, presumably the sun. It had a half dozen long skinny arms reaching out to touch the rulers. Ancient Egypt had no shortage of gods. From the ibis-headed scribe Thoth to Osiris, the first mummy, the people worshipped many deities. But archaeologists had never seen anything like the many-armed sun near Tuna el Gabal. Like the statues uncovered by Claude Sicar, many of the carvings at the newly discovered city bore marks of intentional vandalism. Someone had chiseled away the royal family's faces and tried to scratch out their names. Whoever the sun worshippers were, they seemed to have many enemies. Finally, in 1841, the work of French linguist Jean-Francois Champollion was used to decipher ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics for the first time in over 1,000 years. Using his method, archaeologists could translate the badly damaged names from Tuna el Gabal and the lost city across the Nile. They read King Akhenaten and Queen Nefertiti. There was just one problem. Egyptologists had no idea who Akhenaten or Nefertiti were. By the time their names were revealed, Egyptologists had used Champollion's technique to decipher several lists of Egyptian kings on artifacts, aging papyrus, and ancient walls. But none of these registers mentioned Akhenaten or his queen. Coupled with the damaged statues and scratched-out names, it seemed whoever had an issue with Akhenaten had tried to erase the king from history. Egypt's most infamous periods seemed to feature a heretic king and his obsessive new cult, sweeping changes to the very nature of Egyptian society. And at the center of it all, a beautiful queen with powerful enemies. Coming up, the sun rises on a new god. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream. Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. The city of Amarna holds strange clues about the ancient Egyptian royal family. 
1912, archaeologists discovered Queen Nefertiti's famous bust, prompting questions about what happened to her and why the sculpture was abandoned. Each new discovery only seemed to deepen the mystery. Then, in 1925, French explorers found several enormous statues at a temple complex called Karnak, near Thebes. These figures were about 250 miles away from Amarna, but had the same unusual style as art from the lost city. Scholars quickly determined the statues were of Akhenaten. They showed the ancient king with a distorted face, a long nose and chin, a prominent belly, rounded breasts, and curved hips. Not only was this a departure from the typical ancient Egyptian style, it evoked what's traditionally thought of as a feminine form. One statue in particular stirred controversy. It showed Akhenaten fully nude, but missing male genitalia. This gave rise to all sorts of theories that Akhenaten was a eunuch, had a genetic disorder, or had issues with his endocrine system. Or perhaps the exaggerated features were just symbolic. They weren't meant to be a realistic depiction of the king. But if that was the case, it still didn't explain what they were supposed to symbolize. Thankfully, Egyptologists had access to more than wall carvings and statues to help them interpret the lives of these long-lost rulers. They had their own words. In 1887, a local Egyptian woman ventured to the Amarna ruins in search of fertilizer for her crops. At the time, it was fairly common for farmers to use organic materials from decomposed mud bricks as compost. While digging through the sand, the woman discovered a small box of clay tablets. She wasn't sure what they were, but she set aside the container and continued to scour the area. It turned out she'd found several hundred tablets, each marked with cuneiform, the written language of ancient Mesopotamia. The woman peddled them to a neighbor who sold them to an antiquities dealer. Eventually, 82 tablets made their way to the British Museum. The unnamed Egyptian woman had made an incredible discovery. The tablets were actually letters from 1360 to 1330 BCE. And their authors were influential rulers who'd controlled Babylon, the Mitanni Kingdom of Syria, and other powerful nations of the ancient Near East. Using the Amarna tablets, Egyptologists learned Pharaoh Akhenaten ascended the throne around 1353 BCE. His original name was Amenhotep IV, after the chief sun god Amun-Re. Akhenaten had inherited a kingdom at its height. Egypt was rich, powerful, and cosmopolitan. His father, Amenhotep III, had cultivated friendly relations with nearby kingdoms and controlled several vassal states. However, Akhenaten wasn't the ruler his father was. Several of the tablets contained angry appeals from foreign kings to Akhenaten's mother, Queen Tie. For example, Akhenaten's father had promised to send Mitanni's king solid gold statues. The Mitanni ruler complained that in an attempt to keep down costs, Akhenaten had sent gold-plated ones instead. In another letter, T.A. wrote to the Mitannian king, quote, You must not forget your love for my husband and increase it for our son. 
You must keep sending friendly delegations. The queen wrote several such letters, trying to smooth over Akhenaten's thoughtlessness. Perhaps Akhenaten's gaffes came down to a lack of training. He was never supposed to be king. His older brother, Tutmosis, should have ruled. But after his sudden death around 1360 BCE, Akhenaten suddenly found himself at the front of the line for succession. We don't know exactly how old he was at the time, though he was likely pretty young, a child or teenager. Either way, his shaky first few months as monarch made it clear that if he wanted to live up to his father's legacy, Akhenaten needed help. Sometime around 1350 BCE, a stabilizing presence arrived in his life. He wed Nefertiti, which translates to a beautiful woman has come. But it's not entirely clear where this dazzling woman came from. Most scholars agree she was likely Egyptian. Whatever her background, Nefertiti quickly proved herself to be intelligent and opportunistic. Shortly after marrying Akhenaten, she identified a vacuum in the power structure she could use to her advantage. Religion. At the time, the dominant god in Egypt was Amun-Re. He was a combination of two earlier deities, Amun, which roughly translates to the Hidden One, and Re, the Sun. Previous pharaohs had built shrines to Amun-Re all across the country, though his main temple stood in the city of Memphis. But under Akhenaten's father, Amenhotep III, another god star, or more accurately, disc, had risen. The Aten, a sun disk with long ray-like arms, had been an aspect of Amun-Re for generations. Where Amun-Re was the sun god, the Aten was the sun itself. But Amenhotep III elevated the Aten, making it a distinct god who was more powerful than Amun-Re. Under Akhenaten, Aten worship only grew more fervent. Evidence suggests Nefertiti had a guiding hand in this development. A few years into their marriage, she dubbed herself Neferneferuaten Nefertiti, meaning exquisite perfection of the Aten disk. Shortly afterward, her husband changed his given name, Amenhotep IV, to Akhenaten, meaning one beneficial to the Aten. The royal couple emphasized the worship of the Aten above all other gods, a first for polytheistic ancient Egypt. And soon, they decided they'd mark this new period in Egypt with a shiny new capital. Sometime around 1347 BCE, the king and queen chose a location for their glittering city, an abandoned stretch of the Nile halfway between Memphis and Thebes. They called it Akit Aten, meaning Horizon of the Aten. But because later archaeologists called the site Amarna, we'll do the same to avoid confusion. The city expanded rapidly. Craftsmen built wide roads, administrative buildings, and several palaces, one of which included an aviary and a personal zoo. Akhenaten needed these structures to house his large family. While Nefertiti was his chief wife, he had several others and many, many children. Loyal nobles who'd followed the family to Amarna lived in opulent houses close to the main palace in the north. 
Meanwhile, workers dwelt in smaller houses toward the south. Several temples popped up, all open to the shining sun. Akhenaten and Nefertiti were fully devoted to the Aten, but their new capital wasn't just a religious victory. It was a political one, too. Remember, when Akhenaten became pharaoh, Amun-Re was the top god. The priests that ran his temple at Memphis had been amassing power for decades. Citizens regularly sent them tributes, which meant they were rich and very influential. When Akhenaten and Nefertiti built Amorna, they reversed the flow of wealth. They taxed the Amun-Re priests heavily, draining the holy men's treasury to fund the construction of their new city. According to inscriptions in Memphis, the Amun-Re priests began to openly complain about their treatment. In response, the royal couple went scorched earth. Akhenaten sent stonemasons out to destroy Amun-Re's name wherever it was carved. Amun-Re's temples were closed, and his priests were sent to work in quarries for Amarna. Akhenaten and Nefertiti were determined to rid their empire of all controlling influences, except their own. Based on artifacts found in Amarna, the royal family attempted to fill the hole left by the other gods with themselves. Egyptian pharaohs had always created images of gods bearing their faces. Often, this was meant to strengthen the pharaoh's connection to the divine. But now, Amarna was covered with images of Akhenaten, Nefertiti, and their children under the bright rays of the Aten. And not just in temples or palaces. Some wealthy nobles even had shrines to the royal family in their homes. Additionally, many of the depictions of Akhenaten and Nefertiti were much more egalitarian than others had been. Earlier Egyptian carvings showed a clear stylistic distinction between a pharaoh and his queen. But at least one image from Amarna shows the king and queen worshipping the Aten, wearing the exact same clothes and holding the same regalia. Depictions showed Nefertiti as Akhenaten's equal, which may explain the colossal statues found at Karnak. In particular, the one with no male genitals. Perhaps it wasn't evidence of Akhenaten suffering a genetic disease or being a eunuch. Maybe the statue showed Nefertiti wearing the crook, flail, and false beard of a king. Not only did she have a hand in establishing a brand new religion, it seemed she wanted to rule too. Coming up, Nefertiti goes missing. Now back to the story. In 1965, archaeological researcher Ray Winfield Smith left the United States to explore the wonders of ancient Egypt. He arrived at the Aten Temple in Karnak, eager to step inside. He expected to see something spectacular, perhaps beautiful frescoes like he'd seen at nearby temples. At the very least, carvings to rival the colossal statues of Akhenaten standing outside. But what he got looked closer to a child's messy bedroom than an ancient marvel. Thousands of mud bricks lay stacked in haphazard piles. They were all that remained of the interior walls and columns of the temple. Unfortunately, Smith was several millennia late. 
Sometime after Akhenaten's rule, the structure was disassembled and the bricks recycled. This was likely part of the same purge where the pharaoh's statues at Tuna el Gabel were damaged. It seemed to be an act of revenge against the heretic king. In 1939, German archaeologists had recovered thousands of the bricks from another section of the Karnak complex. But then World War II struck, and they were hastily abandoned. When Smith rediscovered the sad site in 1965, he knew he couldn't leave them to rot. They were valuable ancient art, not a pile of discarded Legos. The following year, he founded the Akhenaten Temple Project. Their goal was to recreate the original murals. In the mid-1970s, they finally reconstructed the images with the help of an advanced computer. And they quickly discovered the Akhenaten Temple Project probably should have picked another name. In the main room, Akhenaten was nowhere to be found. Instead, the bricks formed columns that served as the major artwork of the temple. They depicted Nefertiti leading the worship of the Aten alone. Akhenaten is portrayed in other rooms, but in total, Nefertiti appears almost twice as often as he does. And when they're together, it's typically as equals. This supports the idea that Nefertiti was much more important than her official title as Akhenaten's great royal wife suggests. In many ways, ancient Egypt was a fairly egalitarian society as far as ancient civilizations went. Egyptian women could own property and were often depicted working side by side with men. According to surviving account ledgers, they even received equal pay. So it wasn't all that unusual for Nefertiti to apparently have influence over her husband's rule. But even for such a progressive society, she looms large. In one wall scene, Nefertiti is shown bare-chested in a male kilt, cutting down her enemies. Typically, this is only done by kings. In several other instances, a feminine figure wears a series of crowns associated with royal men. For many years, Egyptologists, almost all of them male, believed the person in these carvings must be an unknown prince. Nope, just Nefertiti. In fact, she has the most surviving depictions of any Egyptian queen, which is especially surprising given that around 1338 BCE, more than 12 years into Akhenaten's reign, she completely disappears from the historical record. According to the Amorna letters, those cuneiform tablets that survived under the sand, one of Akhenaten and Nefertiti's daughters, Mekhet Aten, died sometime around this period. It implies she succumbed to a plague that was ravaging the country. Nefertiti is depicted as part of the grieving family in carvings adorning the late daughter's tomb. However, this is one of the last time she ever appears. It's very possible Nefertiti fell victim to the same plague that killed Mekhet Aten. But it seems strange there isn't proof like a cuneiform letter or similar scenes of mourning. Akhenaten continued to rule for a few years after Nefertiti's inexplicable disappearance. 
Around 1336 BCE, the pharaoh died, though it's not clear how. Like his daughter, he may have been taken by the plague. However, more conspiratorial Egyptologists speculate he was assassinated for his beliefs. Several years later, Akhenaten's son by another wife, Tutankhamun, ascended the throne. We'll discuss that gap in a bit. Akhenaten and Nefertiti only had daughters, and despite all of ancient Egypt's progressive ideals, the throne usually went to a boy. Tutankhamun's rise marked the end of the Amarna period. Several years after he became pharaoh, he moved his capital back to Thebes, abandoning his parents' city. Altogether, Amarna was only inhabited for about 20 years. Later kings, upset by the heresy it represented, dismantled the city and the Aten's temples at Karnak. And that was just the start. The backlash against Akhenaten and Nefertiti was severe. Their statues were defaced, with their eyes and mouths gouged out, and their names scratched into oblivion. Ancient Egyptians believed damaging the images of individuals affected their immortal souls. If their statues didn't have eyes, they could no longer see the human world. If they didn't have names, their spirits were more likely to get lost between this life and the afterlife. Nefertiti's support of the Aten may have been enough to warrant this treatment, but some Egyptologists believe she was targeted for who she was, an Aten-worshipping pharaoh in her own right. Remember what we said earlier. Just a few years passed between Akhenaten's death and King Tut's ascension. The line of succession in this period is confusing. According to various scholars, Akhenaten was succeeded by either one or two pharaohs. Two names have been discovered on art dating from this time. Ankhepurure Neferneferuaten and Ankhepurure Smenkare. It's not clear if they were different rulers or the same person. However, they bore at least one similarity, the name Ankhepurure. It was fairly common for pharaohs and other royals to take on different monikers during their life. They often went by one title as prince and another as king, but it was exceedingly rare for them to share the same throne name like the two Ankhepurures did. Certain Egyptologists believe this is because Nefer-Neferu-Aten, Smenkare, and Nefertiti were one in the same. They insist the clues are right there in the hieroglyphics. Shortly after becoming queen, Nefertiti took on a second name, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, the same as one of the two mystery pharaohs. In some inscriptions, Ankhepurure and Smenkare are described as the beloved of Akhenaten, the same terminology often used for Nefertiti. There are other hints in art from the period. One stone carving from Amarna depicts Akhenaten and another figure. This person has feminine-looking features, and Akhenaten is behaving affectionately toward them. Both wear the crowns of the pharaoh. Early Egyptologists thought this figure must be the young prince Smenkare. They suggested the carving was evidence of an illicit affair between the two. In fact, this must be why Nefertiti disappeared from the record. Akhenaten banished her because he loved Smenkare. 
At least, that's one interpretation of the scene. But those Egyptologists may not have been the most open-minded. Egyptology has long been a male-dominated field, and unfortunately, certain implicit biases are hard to get past, like the idea that women can't rule an empire. Even so, there was already evidence for female pharaohs when the carving of Akhenaten and the feminine figure was being examined. Hatshepsut, the female pharaoh who ruled for about 20 years, wore a false beard and was often depicted in drag as a male pharaoh. Still, some scholars believed she was the exception, not the rule. However, female Egyptologists like Joanne Fletcher and Julie Sampson pointed to Cleopatra and at least 10 other queens who governed Egypt independently, not to mention the myriad queen mothers who ruled as regents until their sons were old enough to ascend the throne. This included Akhenaten's own mother. Which seems more likely, that Akhenaten banished his beloved in favor of his lover, a secret new prince? or that Akhenaten appointed his wife, who's often depicted as his equal, to co-ruler, giving her a new throne name in the process. The evidence depicts Nefertiti as a remarkable woman, a beautiful queen treated as a peer by her king. In this context, her sudden, conspicuous disappearance leaves us scratching our heads. Perhaps Nefertiti died of the plague like her daughter, or she committed some transgression and was driven out of Amarna. Or, as some more recent Egyptologists believe, she ruled as co-regent with Akhenaten, and then on her own. To solve this puzzle, we need to track down a very important piece of evidence. Nefertiti's body. She isn't in Amarna. No one is. So the key to the mystery of Nefertiti's life lies in discovering what really happened to her in death. Thanks for tuning in to this episode from The Mummy's Curse, brought to you by Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. For part two of Nefertiti's Lost Tomb, tune in next time on Unexplained Mysteries. To experience more episodes from The Mummy's Curse, be sure to listen to our other shows, Conspiracy Theories, Rituals, Haunted Places, and Unsolved Murders. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. For more information on The Missing Queen, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Search for Nefertiti by Dr. Joanne Fletcher extremely helpful to our research. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Freddie Rivera, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Molly Quinlan, edited by Natalie Pertsovsky and Angela Jorgensen, Fact-checked by Katherine Barner, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Travis Clark. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.